All right. Here it is. This is the uh, Friday, every other Friday Q&A. I'm Mike Winger. I'm here to try to answer your questions about the Bible, Christianity, not because I am the guru who knows everything about all this stuff, but because simply the effort of trying to work through these topics in the direction of thinking biblically about them, it makes all of us smarter, me too, as we tackle these questions. I only know the first one. The other 19 are all coming from the live chat. You guys are putting them in the chat right now. All that stuff, yada, yada. Um, I do want to mention, though, as we get started, that I have to apologize. Um, the thing that I'm about to share with you is <clears throat> a mistake I've made. Um, and apparently I've made it many times over the years. How many times? I don't know. Um, I don't remember. <laughs> but but I want to be honest about it and, it, and it matters. And so basically there's this... this um, this verse in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, let me share it to you, with you. Um, let me get the King James Version going here. Mm, this will take me a minute. Anyways, here it is. I, I hate to start a stream and be like clumsy here, but I'll, I'll just give it to you. Here it is to say the ESV, right? Um, 1 Thessalonians, the verse I've gotten wrong. <laughs> just, just being honest with you. I'm laughing not because it's funny. I'm laughing because it's embarrassing. Okay. <laughs> Being straight. Okay. So abstain from every form of evil. That phrase, every form of evil, that's pretty much all the translations, you know, but I was asked about this by a questioner like two Q&As ago, maybe three. And I said, boy, you know, I need to look into this more detail because here's the dilemma. While it says every form of evil here in the ESV, while it says every form of evil in the New King James, well, it says every kind of evil in the NIV or the RSV, it says every form of evil in the King James, which for many, you know, for years when I was younger, this is the Bible I was reading. So some of my verses and my memory and my thoughts are from that. Um, the King James actually says abstain from every appearance of evil. So this is this is not a, a, a video about the King James. OK, no, nah. but it is about this verse. Um, the verse itself is radically different if you interpret it, at least in my view, and at least amongst not only me, but other pastors who influence me. And then, of course, you there's there's times as a leader or as a Christian, I should say, where you're simply you're quoting not so much just the Bible, but also all the teaching you've heard up until that point that you trust and you assume is <clears throat> reliable and and people that you know, are giving you giving you the straight truth. And that, that's fine. I mean, a lot of times that's a safe thing to do, but it's obviously not always safe because people are not not flawless. And my, I'm I'm an example of this, of course. So the question was, hey, Mike, uh, why is it it says every appearance of evil in the uh, King James, but in so many other translations, it just says every form of evil. Do you see the difference? Here's how it plays out in real life. Um, alcohol for leaders, Christian leaders. This is a controversial issue, but I think the, the Bible's clear on it. Okay, it's controversial. That doesn't mean it's unclear. Um, I think the Bible's clear on it that, that alcohol is a potential danger, and obviously many lives have been ruined by the overuse and abuse of alcohol, but alcohol is also, other side of the coin, meant to be a blessing for people to enjoy. Okay, so I, I don't drink. I still currently don't drink. Maybe that'll change in my life, and I would not feel embarrassed about that, but that's it's more of a habit and other other things that have gone on in my my family history that have you know caused me to not do that in the past. Um the biblical teaching is pretty clear, though. Alcohol is meant to be something that people can enjoy, um, and yet it is frequently abused and it is frequently overused. Drunkenness is a sin, and alcoholism obviously is a major, major problem and barrier for people in, in being Christians, actually. So here's how the conversation goes. Um, 
Should, should, uh, should say a leader in the church, should a Christian pastor, should they be able to drink? Maybe it's alcohol's not bad, but you know, a lot of people feel that it's bad. A lot of Christians feel that it's bad. Look at the pro- prohibition uh, movement, you know, in the U.S. back in the day. That's left these remnants of a lot of people who think alcohol's bad. I mean, you go to Germany, you go to other places, they're like, meh. You know, they have a, a probably a more, ironically, sober view of the topic of alcohol um, than, than some Christians in the U.S. Here's, here's one where a lot of United States Christians, not even all, maybe not even half, but a lot, have a unsober view of alcohol. Um, they treat all alcohol use as if it's a lack of sobriety. So then the statement goes, well, you know, it's an, it, it may not be evil for a pastor to see privately drink alcohol, but it has the appearance of evil. Or let's say he's at a, at a restaurant and him and his wife are having a good time there and he has a glass of wine or something else. And someone from the church walks by and they see him drinking and they don't know whether he's drinking too much or too little, or even worse, he's in a bar um, and he's drinking and hanging with friends. You don't know if he's, but it has the appearance of evil. So the, the thing that I've shared and, and in now not probably online, I don't think I've ever said this online because I had changed my views on alcohol by then. Um, but in my own previous, you know, 13 years of, of being a pastor and 20 plus years of ministry, I definitely shared this, okay, with people, if, if not publicly, like from a pulpit, privately as an influential leader in their lives, that that has the appearance of evil and we should avoid all appearance of evil. Do you see, that's why this verse and what it means makes a difference. Because if I go, ha, if it's every form of evil, then I'm to avoid every, every form, whatever form evil takes, I'm to avoid it. But if it's the appearance of evil, then I not only avoid evil, I avoid anything that might appear to someone else as evil. And it's easy to see how this principle could, could turn into like an abuse of control over people because you can tell them. You know, don't do that thing. I don't like it. And they go, but it, biblically, there's no problem with it. Yes, but but I feel that it's problematic. So it has the appearance of evil to me. So it can be used to control people in a way that's unbiblical. Um, I think that that was wrong of me when I've done that. I apologize to anybody who's experienced that. And what does it really say? So first off, just to establish that it's every kind of evil, not the appearance of evil, we have the term itself, idus, in the Greek. Okay, I'll just summarize this for you. You don't need a ton of information here. Oh yeah, we're on question one. Um, idus, the word there for kind of evil or appearance, it can go either way, right? The, the term has three uses. One use is the shape and structure of something as it appears to someone, meaning form or outward appearance. That's how the King James translates it, the appearance of evil. Second definition is a variety of something, like a kind, like how many kinds of cats there are, okay? I have two cats in my house and they're two very different kinds of cats. One's a long hair, one's a short hair, um, and they, of course they're different attitudes. They're different kinds of cats, but they're genuinely cats. So if you interpret it that way, then you know you have like the, uh, almost every translation you're gonna see today, um, every form of evil or every kind of evil, but it's genuinely evil. It's not just someone might think that's bad, so you shouldn't do it. Um, also, there's a third use of the term that doesn't apply to 1 Thessalonians 5.22, which is the act of looking slash seeing or sight. Okay, so I do, I, I look at something. Um, and that's not what, that's, there's no way that's what it means in this verse. But let me read to you from the Pillar New Testament commentary, Letters to the Thessalonians. This is a, a just a, a good commentary resource, not that I agree with everything and I don't think that. But... It helps you understand why everybody who translates 1 Thessalonians 5.22 goes against the King James rendering here in this particular verse, and they go with kind instead of appearance. 
Let me quote to you from the Pillar New Testament commentary. The term translated kind appears in other contexts with the meaning appearance, but only in the sense of external appearance that reflects internal reality. That's one problem, pause on the quote here, with the King James rendering, at least the way it comes off to many readers, is that the thing's not really evil, but it looks evil. When it, when it has the term referring to appearance, it's always referring to appearance that reflects you know, inner reality, meaning it's actually evil. It doesn't just look evil and it's not, it's actually evil. So then that would be an abuse, even of the King James, if if that's how we're going to interpret it. Um, now I continue the quote here. But it frequently is found alongside the word every, ah, pentas, right? So it's like every kind, every kind. When those two words are together, it means um, giving us the, excuse me, it means every kind. In these contexts, as I quote, it means Every kind giving us the rendering of the NIV, ESV, RSV, NKJV, NRSV, probably the CSB, NET, NLT, probably everybody except uh, who knows what the Passion Translation says on that verse. <laughs> and so anyways, that, that's the idea. If you read also the whole passage, and here's, here's, the, here's the thing. The context itself reveals that there's more reason to think that the evil here is not the appearance of evil, but actually kinds of evil. Verse 19 of 1 Thessalonians, uh, chapter uh, 5, starting in verse 19, here it is. Do not quench the spirit. Okay, we're getting a bunch of individual instructions here. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, some people think that that is every evil utterance. Uh, there's a translation I saw that actually translates it evil utterance. Um so that the evil is specifically bad prophecies or bad words that are supposedly from God and you're to abstain from those. But it doesn't say reject here, it says abstain. And as you keep reading, you'll see that there's there's a parallel between verse 22 and 23. Abstain from every form of evil and may the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly. How are you to be sanctified wholly? When you abstain from all kinds of evil. And may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? I'm abstained from all evil so I could be um, sanctified completely and found blameless. These things go together, meaning that actual evil is in view here. The problems with um, saying that it's appearance of evil, there's a few of them here. And uh, and again, I'm guilty of having done this. Um, again, I, I don't think I've ever done it well, I, I've never done it related to alcohol. I, I know there's a couple of clips of me online talking about the appearance of evil. I'll leave those clips up because the other points I was making, it was like in passing, I mentioned the appearance issue and I wish I hadn't brought that into it. But the other things I was saying about those topics made that uh, that answer relevant and accurate, I, I believe. So I'm, I'm not going to adjust those things. But um, but the problem with this view is that you, you could think of Jesus and the Pharisees and his disciples when they were... Uh, rubbing grain in their hands on the Sabbath, you could say that had the appearance of evil. Certainly to the Pharisees it did. But Jesus strongly took the side of his disciples that they had the liberty to do this and that this was not an issue of the conscience of the Pharisees being wounded. This was an issue of them creating ungodly and unbiblical rules that really were harmful to other people, causing them incon inconvenience and as well as other kinds of harm. Jesus describes it as binding heavy burdens and placing them upon people's shoulders. All the things that they can't do and can't do. There's plenty of things to avoid that are actually evil. We don't need to extend it to stuff that's not even evil, but that someone might interpret as being evil. So I think that that would be a good view. Um, a follow-up question might be, 
before we get to uh, your guys' uh, questions, might be, um, are there other verses in the Bible that do mention the appearance of evil? And I've already mentioned one that sort of strikes against this idea as being a principle, and that's the, the rubbing of grain in their hands on the Sabbath. That had the appearance of evil to many in that culture, but it wasn't evil. And so Jesus wanted to free them from unnecessary burdens. And so that's important. But there are um, other things that are not the same, but they're related. Okay, they're not the same. So it's Romans 13, 14, which tells us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Here, I'm back on the ESV, which I typically, more often than not, I'm using. Um, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So this is not the appearance of evil. This is a different issue. This is uh, not only am I avoid, to avoid sinning, but I'm a, to avoid creating circumstances in my life that that cause or lead towards sin. Okay, so that, that's a different principle. It's not because there's nothing sinful about the, the Sabbath thing, nothing sinful about someone with a free, clean conscience enjoying uh, soberly enjoying uh, alcohol. Um, that's fine. So this is about not creating provision to gratify the flesh, to... to to have the flesh take over. So if you know that you have an issue with alcohol, for instance, you personally do, that you don't tend to stop after one drink, that you don't tend to regulate this carefully, then drinking at all or having you know shelves stocked with liquor could be creating provision for your flesh, not for someone else's, so you don't dump that on other people. But there's wisdom that can, can be had here. I don't want to create provision for the flesh. I don't want to... Maybe there's certain friends I couldn't hang out with because while there's nothing wrong with having friendships, nothing wrong with having a friendship with that person in general. It's not like I'm telling other people not to be their friend. But for me, every time I hang out with them, I end up in sin. I end up drugging into old habits and bad bad attitudes and actions. And so for me, a generally positive thing, a friendship can be creating provision for my flesh. So this is a more nuanced principle. I think it's biblical. Uh, the next one is Romans 14, 20 through 22. And th this one talks about um, not the appearance of evil, but not, but a different issue, which is to not hurt other people with your liberties. Okay. This is, uh, again, this is nuanced. So we got to think clearly about these things, I think, but here's what it says. Do not for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. The work of God here is the God's work of sanctifying another person and the, and, and sort of where they're at in their walk with Jesus, right? Everything indeed is clean. Paul's teaching about the fact of the food is all foods clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. This phrase, the faith that you have, that is one person has the faith where they go, I could uh, say I could drink this uh, small glass of bourbon or whatever. And someone else goes, I don't have that. I, I have a conviction about that. I, I just can't do it, you know. So that faith. Faith is talking about faith of the ability to enjoy something that might someone else might have a problem with. They don't have that faith to have. That's the context of Romans 14. Read the whole chapter and you'll get it. But he says, fine, you have that faith. Keep between yourself and God. Meaning you can enjoy that on your own. But when you do it in front of others, it may influence them. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Um, and he goes on. So how do I apply this? Because you could simply say the same thing. Hey, you know what? The the issue of food and drink is being brought up in this passage by by Paul. And he's like, hey, if if, if me drinking wine stumbles my brother, I, I, I'll never do it again, he says. 
I'll, I won't, I'll just stop. Um, this is to show how important it is to love and care for others. It is not meant to become the, the tyranny of whoever has the most strict conscience. Like you've got one person in your church who's like, I think that, um, men should always wear suits in church. I'm really offended if they don't. I think women should always wear long ankle length dresses and that they should not have makeup in church. And let's say that someone, and they feel this totally sincerely. They feel like it's a real requirement. Can you use this verse to place that burden on everybody in the congregation? No, I, I think the issue here is um, individuals, at, in my individual interactions with this person, I will take on their convictions in order to reach them more. But what I won't do is take their convictions and turn that into a communal rule for everybody where I put a megaphone on them and say, hey, because, you know, like say, say any secular music stumbles my friend. So when he's in my car, what am I not going to do? I'm not going to play secular music. But am I going to then tell the whole church, everybody, you all have a command to not listen to secular music because so-and-so. And, and then what we do is we just go around the church and we find out all the really strict convictions of the most strict people in the church and then tell everybody they have to do that. That would be an unhealthy abuse of Romans 14. And that's where it moves into the whole Sabbath thing and binding heavy burdens and putting them on upon people. This takes wisdom. Okay, life is is chaotic and complicated, and it takes wisdom to apply. But I want to apologize. I've <clears throat> uh, shared used this verse wrong. I'll never do that again. And I'm always learning and always growing. And I usually try to catch these things before I say it out loud. <laughs> but sometimes I fail and I learn, and um, that's just the reality of it. All right, so we're going to go to your guys' questions now, and um. Question number two comes from Joel S. who says, what was Jesus's DNA? Was Jesus's DNA 100% from God or did he have Mary's human DNA? Perhaps it's the same DNA as Adam since Jesus is the second Adam. Very interesting questions, Joel. And I'm about to answer those. I want to just remind you guys, I always forget this. I've been meaning to say this for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, those of you who are watching on uh, YouTube or whether you're on some other platform, maybe you're watching on podcasts, we're everywhere on podcasts. Um, if there is on the platform you're on, ability, the ability you have to give ratings, like do a review and do a positive review of the program itself, that's a huge, huge help. It really is in reaching more people. Okay. So like when if you rate the podcast and you give it, let's say that you believe it's worth five stars and you write a little comment about that, that really does send signals that cause the content to reach more people in the long run. And so if you're like, Hey Mike, I love your content. Uh, I'm totally behind it. I want it to reach more people. If you're one of those people <clears throat> by liking, by, by commenting, and especially by rating, if you're on a platform that allows that, that's a way to help us reach more people. It doesn't cost you anything. So anyways, th that's something I like to share. Um, I mean to say that forever. I'll, I'll share it again sometime soon. Okay, so Jesus's DNA was Jesus's DNA 100% from God. I think that you're, you're like, hey, okay, maybe Jesus's DNA came straight from God. Maybe he shared uh, Mary's human DNA um, and how much then? And then maybe he had DNA from Adam because you feel like maybe there's missing DNA that a man needs to provide. So maybe it just sort of was God sort of transcribed Adam's DNA onto Jesus. Let me say a few things to start off with. Uh, first, this is total conjecture on my part. Okay, total conjecture. There's nothing clear in the scripture that answers this <laughs> answers this question, or even speaks about the concept of DNA, to my knowledge. Okay, there's nothing in there that speaks to that. Uh, nor would anybody who read it have understood it if it did. Right? It would have it would have looked like gibberish to them. But 
we can take what we know about DNA, and I, I know this much about DNA, um, and then I can take what we know about Jesus in the Bible, and we know a little bit more about that, at least I do, and we can try to construct plausible answers. Answers that would not violate um, what we see taught in Scripture and would and hopefully would not violate what we know about human DNA. Okay, that's where I'm I'm on a ledge here because I don't know that much about human DNA. I, I've, I've looked into DNA somewhat, okay? I understand the, you know, transcription a little bit and things like that. And I think it's messenger RNA and things like that are really brilliant and super interesting and the tiny micro machines and all the, the, the folding of proteins, all that stuff is like super interesting. I understand that DNA is like blueprints for grabbing, you know, amino acids and pulling them together into proteins. I think that stuff's super cool. Okay, I'm not a science guy, but I... I I looked into it and yeah, it's really neat stuff. But usually, you know, I get some DNA from mom, some from dad. Where did Jesus get his DNA? Well, here's some facts, right? Um, Jesus would have had DNA because he was truly human. Okay, so he definitely had DNA. And his DNA would have been human DNA. Why would I say that? Because biblically speaking, he was human. DNA is a physical um, blueprint functioning it's more than a blueprint because it's, it's the instructions and it actually participates in in doing the building of the different proteins and stuff and uh, dna is is part of that and it's part of the what's what humans need and humans have god is spirit there is no reason to think he has anything like human dna or any dna of any kind and so I don't think you could look at Jesus's DNA under a microscope and see anything other than human DNA. If you compared it to another human's DNA, you would not look at it and think Jesus's DNA looks different than the normal human DNA. It would just be normal human DNA. That being said, um, I don't know if DNA requires that you you can't just have the same basic DNA as the as the mother, but but with whatever would code for being a guy. I, I don't know. I don't know how that works. I mean, when you have two twins who have like the same DNA, but one's a boy and one's a girl, isn't that a thing? I mean, I, I thought it was. <laughs> um, so I, I don't, <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know. It's possible that it's just Mary. It's possible that God tweaked things slightly because that was just the optimal way, but it would have been human DNA. Would God have borrowed from Adam's DNA to bring in um, that um, I, I mean, it, is it like possible? Sure. But it's what it is, is it's, it's ad hoc, meaning I just sort of made this up because it, I feel like it resolves a question that maybe I feel like a human DNA, a human male DNA has to be there. And Joseph's not a good candidate, right? For obvious reasons. Um, but if you go down, maybe the best candidate would be Adam, right? Or maybe it was David because Jesus is the son of David, or, or maybe it was Abraham because it was the loins of Abraham that God promised his seed, you know? Um, I, I think that this is just super conjectury, and I'm not going to go there. Um, so yeah, fully human DNA, not God's DNA. God doesn't have DNA. And often I hear people use the term God's DNA. Um, in And sometimes maybe that's appropriate if people understand what you mean by it. But but this can only be used in a metaphorical sense. There is no literal DNA for God. So yeah. Let's uh, go to question number three. Hey, Pastor Mike, love what you do. It has helped me in my walk. That This is from DC. Thank you, DC. Um, that means the world to me. Like, I don't take those words lightly. Uh, that means the world to me. I'm so glad to hear that. What did Jesus mean in John, 5, John 1, 51? Is it a specific word for Nathaniel, or does it apply to everyone? Would really love some clarity. Well, let's go look at John 1, 51. Here we are. 
Um, I'm going to back up a little bit because we want context to understand it a little bit better. So Philip, here we'll start with Jesus calling Philip, verse 43. This is the, towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's calling his, his apostles to follow him. Um, although John uses the word disciple usually, not apostle. Just, they both apply. That's just what he usually uses. Uh, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. So they're thinking Jesus is the Messiah. Like this is what they're basically saying. The son of Joseph. Nathaniel said, now notice this key is he came from Nazareth. Nazareth had a reputation for those who don't know of being like a podunk town, Hicksville kind of backwater place. It was, um, okay. So in modern times, we've got a lot of movies and stories that try to break the idea that you should, um, treat in a derogatory fashion, sort of the, the hillbilly style or backwater person. Uh, but they didn't have that. Okay. So the, he's got this real bias against people from Nazareth. So Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Uh, which some have debated, like I saw a commentary debating, was that like a saying back then? Was Nazareth known for just being lame? And so that was like a saying they had. Uh, Philip said to him, come and see, come and see, which is kind of cool because, you know, metaphorically, you could take this and apply it to the idea that there's people who think of Jesus as being just so diminutive, just this ancient Jew you know, Bronze Age writers. That, that's that's this, the phrase atheists and skeptics like the most about the Bible. Bronze Age writers. Um, even when they're talking about ones that weren't in the Bronze Age. And um, and the response is, hey, come and see. Hey, how about you come and, how about you go study the words of Jesus? And how about you, you come and see? Um, you might be surprised. So Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Right. They've never met before. And so Nathaniel's like, how do you, how do you know me? Was it true? He was an Israelite in whom there was no deceit. Well, yeah. Um, Nathaniel, was he, was he biased, prejudiced against people from Nazareth? Yep. But, but, but he was in general, like a very genuine, um, guy that was genuinely trying to follow God. Jesus answered him before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. This is immediately going to dispel the idea in, in Nathaniel's head that Jesus is nothing other than this sort of ignorant guy from Nazareth. He supernaturally knew, why does he say under the fig tree? Because if he just said, before Philip called you, I I saw you. Like, like that, that's cute, but that's not really evidence of anything. He's providing tangible proof that he has this sort of supernatural knowledge. He, um, he, he saw, he didn't just know about it, he saw Philip under a fig tree in particular. This is where he was. And so Nathaniel, or he saw Nathaniel, excuse me. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Okay, this is probably a truncated or shorter version of their conversation. But the basic response is like, yeah, he gets it. He sees Jesus's supernatural knowledge coupled with the claims about Moses and the law and the prophets and all that. Uh, it, it breaks down his prejudice about who could qualify for being sort of like God's anointed one. You know, he's, he's no longer looking for a Saul, he's looking for a David, right? He's no longer looking for Saul, the, the, the tall, like everyone would look to him. And of course you'll be the king. He's looking for the David who's left forgotten with the sheep, right? That's the idea that light went on for him. Um, so Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you will see greater things than these? And he said to him, truly, 
Truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So your question is, um, let me go back to your question. What did Jesus mean in John 151? Is it a specific word for Nathaniel or does it apply to everyone? Would really love some clarity. Um, well, I mean, I think in this in this exact context, it it's used for more than just Nathaniel. This this here's the see this little 13 right here, this little footnote. The footnote here says that the Greek for you is plural twice in this verse. So all of a sudden Jesus shifts and he he says to Nathaniel, but he says in plural to you all, right? In English, modern English, we don't really have, we don't usually use the word you to distinguish whether we have singular or plural in, in view. I say you, I'm talking about a huge audience or I'm talking about just the guy who asked the question. Jesus is using it plural here. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Um, the, um, let me think here about how much to talk about <laughs> in regards to this. I think the allusion here, the allusion is to the Old Testament, in particular to Jacob, when he saw that sort of ladder or stairway or pathway to go to heaven and the angels ascending and descending. And then that was like a conduit between heaven and earth. And that's where he's like, wow, I'm on holy ground. And then of course, you know, God is in that place. And so Jesus is, is the one who the angels are descending and ascending on, meaning that there's sort of like, he's the focal point of this transition between heaven and earth. Jesus is uh, ultimately the one who is the door to heaven. He's the one who opens the door to heaven for us. There's probably a lot more that can be said about all that um, and questions you'd have about that. But when you ask the last question, um, is it a specific word for Nathaniel or does it apply to everyone? I think it could apply either to the, just the disciples that they have some particular like vision or experience you know, where they would see this or it could apply to all of creation where he's like, you're just getting a glimpse of me. There's a time coming when all will see that I am the one who comes with the authority of heaven and all that kind of stuff where it's talking about sort of the second coming of Christ where everyone will see. I would lean towards thinking the second coming is in view here. That would be, that would be where I would lean towards. Um, the other possible things are like the baptism of Jesus when the heavens were opened and then, and the Holy spirit descended, but we didn't really see the angels descending. Um, so unless, unless he just said it that way to be more of an allusion to Genesis where that was being discussed. But I, I tend to think of this as being the, the second coming though, um, where Jesus comes and he comes with the clouds of heaven. He comes with the angels. He comes with the authority of heaven and he comes to rule and reign. That'd be my understanding of it, but I'm obviously open to reconsidering. <clears throat> Let's go to the next question. This comes from DC. Uh, I'm sorry, this is question four. This comes from Corey Seitz. Uh, hey, Mike, how do we balance being careful not to stumble a fellow believer, but also not cater to someone's legalism? Great question. 100% on topic for the first question today, too. How do you balance these things? Um, I mean, the short answer is wisdom. Right? How do I balance? It's wisdom. Um, I think maybe what what I, I I'm trying to process myself as I I'll just speak out loud and think out loud with you um, one thing that I think of is what Jesus seems to be trying to avoid with the Pharisees as I alluded to in the first question was that they were binding heavy burdens and making making things into commands of God that were really just the rules of man um, so one thing to avoid is burdens and one thing to avoid is making rules of man into commands of God so here's a question. 
while you're around someone who is um, a fellow believer and you don't want to stumble them, but you're using the word legalistic. I, I tend to avoid that word for these types of things because I tend to think of legalistic, just my own understanding of it, is more about saying you have to do these good works in order to earn salvation. Maybe Jesus gives you grace, but you also have to do these good works in order to earn salvation. That's that's where I think of as legalism. So, oh, sorry about that. Kick my desk. Um, so I tend to think of this more as just, uh, you know, bad <laughs> and wrong-headed. I mean, I mean, I should have a word for it. But um, is is a person who says, "Ooh, I can't, uh, I can't handle," you name it, secular music. Okay, um, are they trying to? dwell with their brethren who don't have that same conviction with understanding and knowing that it's their conviction and it's not a rule they should place on others, that should be a good attitude they have. Like if they don't have that attitude, then they're moving more towards the mistake that these Pharisees were doing, um, which I wouldn't call Pharisaism like it's the whole thing that they're falling into, but there is definitely a mistake the Pharisees fell into they're falling into here. Uh, let me try to put it this way. Um, let's say that I, my, my, my I, I had a friend who couldn't hear any secular music and, and so even when Christians in church took a secular song and reworded it, which at, at Hosanna, when I was, when I was there, there would, they would do that frequently in the past, probably many years ago. It hasn't happened much in the re, in recent years, but that, um, practice of taking a secular song and sort of redeeming it was the idea. And where one of the worship leaders would do this frequently, my friend would just like get up and he'd step out during those times. And he never did this with judgment. He 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 had the right attitude. He was like, "I'm not judging anybody else in the in the in the room. I'm not saying they shouldn't or can't do it." He knew it was all him. He's like, "I just can't take it." Right? Like, I'm a musician. I was involved in like all sorts of bad stuff back in the day when I was part of that. And those songs really bring it back, and it it, it hurts me. Okay, so I'm going to step out. He didn't think it was something he would put on the whole congregation, but in an individual circumstance, he might ask you not to play that on the radio. But he's not going to try to control a massive group of people because of what he knows is his own conviction. I think that the weak person, for this to be healthy, the weak... Okay, I use the word weak there, not because I, I, I'm trying to insult them. That's actually the term Romans uses. The weaker brother is the one who can't enjoy the things God wants them to because their conscience is weak on that issue. I know, I don't like that because I've been that guy a lot. And when I read and studied Romans 14 in particular, I was like... I'm, I'm the weaker brother. I always thought I was more strict because I was just more committed. Okay. Just being maybe arrogant. I'm actually the weaker brother here and I'm pushing my weakness on everybody. Like they have to be weak too. When the weaker brother realizes that the rules they have aren't actually rules from God, right? It's not the commands of God, right? These are the rules of man. Then they don't put it on whole congregations full of people, though they might ask for some grace in dealing with them individually because they, they're like, look, I got a weaker conscience. I got a weaker conscience. So that's one issue. If the if the brother who is like the weaker brother, the one who has the, the stricter conscience on issues that are genuinely not sinful, okay, because we should have strict consciences on every sin, avoid every kind of sin, every kind of evil, but on issues that are not sinful, uh, for that person, um, if they if they make it a command of God instead of just their conviction, they need to be dealt with and that that can't just be overlooked okay that's actually a problem if they uh try to bind these burdens and put them on everybody instead of just asking for the sake of fellowship that people try to be a little gracious to them in those environments um that's important too now on the other hand the brother with the liberty 
it's fine that you have your, let's say that you, you enjoy drinking. I've always wrestled with this on social media and I don't know the perfect answer for it. You guys can share what you think about this. Christian enjoys <clears throat> drinking, but they know that in their church, maybe 10, 20%, 8% of the people in their church and in their social Christian social circle, they have a conviction about drinking. Now these people, let's say they're healthy, they don't put that conviction on everyone, but you know they have it for themselves. Should I put photos of my, and I, I'm not doing this, but, but photos of me drinking beer on the internet, on social media for everyone to see, like where is the keep it between yourself and the Lord thing here? I'm not trying to hide my sin, but I'm trying to keep my liberty and the thing I can enjoy between me and God. Thank you. I thank you, God, for this yummy beer. Okay. And again, I've never done this, but you could, okay. <laughs> Biblically speaking, yes, you can. Um, but it's different to then put it in front of everyone else. So I've always thought if I'm doing something I enjoy, um, and it, it might be a stumbling block to others. But I do believe it's in a clean conscience, I can totally do this before the Lord, that I just won't put it on a megaphone in front of everybody. I'll still enjoy it between me and the Lord, and that's fine. I think by everybody sort of doing those things, it will help. Um, man, I hope that that helps answer some of those questions. Yeah. Let's go to, oh, I'm still on that. Go to question number five. And I've got all 20 questions for today. All 20 questions. Um, Burley says, polygamy, question mark. Exodus 21, 10 and 11 says, if he takes to himself another woman, he may not reduce her food, her clothing, her conjugal rights. Clearly, God is speaking of multiple wives. Your thoughts? Uh, Burra, I agree with you. God is speaking of multiple wives here. This is a verse, a passage that's about polygamy. Let's look at it in detail. Um, if he takes another wife to himself, that's obviously polygamy. One guy's got a wife and he takes another wife to himself. He shall not diminish her food. Who's the her? Well, we got to back up. We just have to back up. So one of the most controversial passages online, um, well, mostly people don't understand it. <laughs> what they do is they see trigger words in this passage. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, <gasps> if he takes a wife, another wife to himself, <gasps> um, they see these things. If she does not please her master, they see these phrases and they and they just they're total triggers. What what the first thing we have to recognize is these are scenarios. If this scenario happens, it's not approval of the scenario. For instance, um, whoever strikes a man so that he dies, that's a scenario. It is not an approval of the scenario. That's a huge distinction we have to make. The law Exodus the law they include dozens and dozens and dozens of scenarios. If this happens, do this. If that happens, do this. It's not approval of those situations, of those circumstances. It's a recognition that in the community of real human beings in the ancient Middle East, they're experiencing these things. These things are happening and it's helpful if they actually have some rules about them for when they happen. So rather than look at the circumstances, when uh, a man sells his daughter as a slave, um, if she does not please her master and... Um, if he takes another wife to himself, these phrases are the, we, we shouldn't look at those as, as establishing ideals or being prescriptive. They're just descriptive. They're not telling you what to do. They're telling you if this happens. So the part where the Bible comes in and should be evaluated and the law should be evaluated and considered is when it says what you do if that happens. So here's what the Bible says you do if that happens. 
When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. It's just a fact that female throughout history, women who were um, slaves or servants, and because that word encompasses ebed, encompasses all of the above, all category, okay? It's not just chattel slavery. It's all category of servants, even ones who had rights, even ones who had rights to flee, even ones who um, had uh, other rights. What this is doing is it's recognizing a circumstance in the ancient Middle East and in all places where there's been slavery where women are just treated different. They are treated as sex slaves. This is common in cultures where there is where there are females who are in slavery, uh, which has been every human culture throughout time until very recently, which is why the Bible needs laws about these things. It was You could be like, you can't do this, but that wouldn't stop the sex slavery. This would actually do something, at least for the Israelites. So she shall not go out as the male slaves do. You, you can't just treat her like another slave. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, a strange phrase, but I'll explain it, then he shall let her be redeemed. The idea here is going out or leaving, right? When, when someone says, hey, you're, I'm, I'm releasing you, you're, you're debt free or whatever, you're no longer a slave. They had to send them out with provisions. This was part of what God did to protect slaves in the Old Testament. They had to go out with provisions. Uh, they couldn't just go out with nothing which would effectively mean they can never go out. They can never leave this, this uh, temporary servitude. Um, but what's assumed is that the woman is being brought in as a wife. He's designated her for himself. So a man, here's a scenario. A man, uh, he he uh, gets a, a female and he says, I'm, I'm going to bring you in to be my wife. Okay, because sex, just sleeping, having sex with your slaves is not allowed. Not allowed in the in the old testament but so he goes okay i'm going to marry her then so he can't just send her out after he marries her he's not allowed to go i married her i slept with her and now you go this is something that happens in islam where they go oh i marry you for tonight and then and then now we're now we're divorced so they could sleep together and then get around the idea that it's adultery or you divorce your wife momentarily and then she sleeps with someone and then you you remarry her this is um this is something you can't do you can't just send her out. If you're not happy, if for some reason he's not going to gonna keep her as his wife, then he shall let her be redeemed. Right? You, you can't just send her out. Uh, he shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people. You can't use her and then sell her to somebody else, especially a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. Get this, the, 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 the owner in this context, which was their context in the Old Testament, he can't send her out or sell her to someone else. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. If it's his son that she's going to marry, he has to treat her as a daughter, not as a slave. She comes in as a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, that bad situation where he's like, fine, if I can't get rid of her, I can't just send her away. I can't sell her to someone else. Um, but I'm going to get another wife. So polygamy. He shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. She can't be treated as second class. Meaning she was bought as a slave, designated as a wife, and now she has to be treated as a full wife at all times. This is a protection for abused women in the culture. Catch that? Anyway, there's more that can be said about this, but these are protections, and this is generally what we'll see. When these issues come up in the Old Testament, they're real issues that the people were really going to deal with. Some people are like, why didn't God just say this? That would make you, 21st century person, feel good about the Bible, but it would not have helped people much because that slavery was going to continue whether or not there were laws about it. But the laws tended to continually promote um, 
the well-being and protections for the slaves. For instance, uh, if, if a master beats a slave and the slave dies, the master gets the death penalty according to scripture. That was not present in any of the ancient Near East laws at the time. These, these things are frequently overlooked because people get triggered by this, the very circumstance of slavery and they don't realize this was bettering the situation in many ways. I think that's an important fact. Um, so I hope that helps. Let's go to Sarah Woody. Who Sarah says, uh, hey, Pastor Mike, in Word of Faith Circles, 2 Kings 4, 8 to 37 is an example of why you shouldn't speak or pray negatively about your situation. What is the actual idea of this passage? Your ministry is a blessing. Yeah, let's look at that passage. Um, 2 Kings chapter 4. Put it on your screen. Elijah and the widow's oil. Um, you said starting in verse 8. Elijah and the Shunammite woman. Okay. One day, Elisha went on to Shunam, where a wealthy... Elisha is one of the prophets of the Old Testament, right? Where a wealthy woman lived who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put, <clears throat> and put there for him a bed, a table and chair and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. I can... I can already picture some of these egotistical word of faith guys. Not all of them are egotistical, by the way. I'm talking about the egotistical ones, like uh, Kenneth Copeland, um, coming in and thinking, ah, yes, my congregants should have a place for me to stay at all times. I could just see them thinking that I'm the man of God. Okay. One day he came there and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him and he said to him, Say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, uh, I dwell among my own people. And he said, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, well, she has no son and her husband is old. He said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. And she's worried that this is not the case. But the woman conceived and bore a son about that time. And uh, about that time, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. Okay, so let's keep reading. That's the first stage of the story. They're not, you're going to have a son. Oh, no, don't, you know, that's my, my hopes are going to be too raised. This, look, any woman who's gone through this not having a kid or a guy for that matter, not being able to kid understands why she's like, Oh, don't get my hopes up. Like that, that rips my heart out. Don't, don't get my hopes up. I understand her saying this. Um, <clears throat> then next step in the story, when the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat in, on her lap till noon. And then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door uh, behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. So the kid's waiting there in that room that she made for, for him, for Elisha. And he said, why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, all is well. So he's like, there isn't like a a festival or occasion for you to go want to see him what's going on and she doesn't tell him she just says all is well she, she lies to him um then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant urge the animal on do not slacken the pace for me unless i tell you so she set out and came to the man of god at mount carmel she's urgently seeking she wants to get as quick as she can when the man of god saw her coming he said 
to Gehazi, his servant, look, there is the Shunammite. She's emphasized as a Shunammite, right? Because she's not an Israelite is the reason why she's emphasized as that. Um, and Jesus talks about this in Luke 4, Luke, where he's <clears throat> at Nazareth. It's an interesting uh, connection about all that. Just a second. I need to drink water or I will die. Okay, so Elisha says to his servant, run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, all is well. And when she came to the mountain, so this is the servant she's talking to. When she came to the mountain, uh, to the man of God, that's Elisha, she caught hold of his feet and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone for she is in bitter distress and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Uh, frequently, God did reveal things to Elisha uh, and Elijah, just things that they would know. <clears throat> then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Don't, do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, <clears throat> tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply, meaning you're going to be in a big hurry. So she seems to be telling him, my son is dead. Um, th th that's the implication, right? Didn't I tell you, don't deceive me? Meaning that the son you, that, that the Lord gave me it has died. So he's like, get over there right away, Gehazi. Uh, if you meet anyone, don't greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child, right? So he definitely understands the child has died. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he rose and followed her, right? I'm, I'm not leaving. I, she doesn't, she's not relying on Gehazi, right? She wants Elisha. She's the one she's like, I know that God's with you. I know God uses you. Um, then Gehazi went on ahead. You, you said all the way to verse 37. We're going to read that, that whole section here. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and told the child has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child putting his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Uh, this isn't, this isn't, I don't think that he's heating up the child with his own body heat. I mean, that could be implied. I think this is uh, showing that there's like a slow return of life. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. All right. Tons of stuff there. I won't even try to get into all of it. Here's the question. How did the Word of Faith people use this? You say, you say is it an example of why you shouldn't speak or pray negatively about your situation? No. And here's a few reasons. Um, one, the Shunammite was negative the whole time, <laughs> right? If negativity was blocking her negativity, that she had a somewhat negative attitude. If that was blocking the work of God, she never would have had a kid. Elijah, you're going to, you're going to have a son. Oh, don't lie to me. What does she do? She has a son. So you, meaning like God, someone could say, the Lord's going to do this in your life. And you're going to, you could say, I don't believe that. No, or, or, or don't, don't get my hopes up. And the word of faith person's like, well, don't say that now it won't happen. Okay, some word of faith people would say that. Not all, I'm sure. Um, but the one who does was obviously wrong because the passage they're using to say it has the opposite happen. She has a son. Then her son dies. Was this her negativity that caused her son to die? Is there any indication in the passage that her negativity caused her son to die? None whatsoever. Oh, my head, my head. 
and then he died. And then she exhibits what seems to be actually faith with tons of grief because she will not leave his side. She rushes over to see him. She thinks Elisha can actually help, but she still is negative about it. But she, she, so it's a prayer. It's a prayer for help. It's, it's an appeal for assistance for God's, for God to do a miracle. Um, and it's a belief that Elisha is someone through whom God can do this. So there, there's positivity there, but the negativity is still present. Oh, like, oh, I told you not to deceive me. That's how she explains the loss of her son, understandably. Um, and then what happens with her negativity in place? He heals and raises the son. So yeah, um, that's not the case. Now, is it possible there's a type of negativity? Yeah. Um, you know, there's the story of the whole smash the arrows thing and the king doesn't smash them as very many times because he's just not really, it's showing his lack of faith. But you can have grief and sorrow and fear and faith at the same time. And I think that's what this woman has here. Um, so yeah, a word of faith person using it for that reason, I think is making a big mistake. Um, the passage here is showing God's miraculous work. It's showing that he works, he's working here among a Gentile where he's not working amongst the Israelites at the time, foreshadowing how the gospel will go out to the, to the Gentiles after the Jews are rejecting. Um, um, that's part of it. Jesus uses the story for that. He talks about this specific one. Um, it's also perhaps talking about how, um, there can be a promise of God in your life here. Let's, let's make this really, really broad uh, application where God does something and all your hopes are in it. And then it's not working out. And then you just continue to pray and continue to wait and continue to hope and you seek the Lord. And then he brings that thing back. Okay. Is that a prophecy about your life? No, but it can happen. And it can be a description of, um, the messianic hope of Israel, right? Um, I think in some ways. Anyway, I'll, I'll move forward without getting into more detail on that because of time. So here's question number seven. Even Hazar, uh, Ha'ezer says, Hi, Pastor Mike, is there a difference between envy and jealousy? Uh, can you describe the difference, what the difference is biblically? Oh, gosh. Uh, even I would probably want to like sit and think about this some more and like ponder on the differences between envy and jealousy. I think... Um, they seem like they, they're over to me. I'm just giving you, forgive me. I'm not a dictionary, but I'm, and, I, and I don't have fresh in my head, a distinction here. So they seem like overlapping meanings, envy and jealousy are overlapping meanings. But where I would be interested to answer your question is focusing on the areas where they don't overlap. Um, perhaps envy is, can, and here's my gut reaction. Maybe I'm wrong. Double check this. Perhaps envy is used of wanting things other people have. Whereas jealousy and, and jealousy can be used for that, but it's also used for when someone else has something that rightly is yours. So like the jealousy of a husband isn't, I don't think I would call that envy. So if, 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 uh, if my wife were to cheat on me, um, which won't happen, but if, if that were to happen, then I would rightly be jealous of the affection that my wife would be giving that person. And so my wife could feel the same way. She'd rightly be jealous. That that would be proper jealousy, but I would never call that envy. I wouldn't use the word envy to talk about that. because, So jealousy can be right in some circumstances, but envy, um, and it, or it, I should be more careful, jealousy can refer to things that are rightfully yours, which you don't have. Whereas envy never seems to refer to that. But maybe it does. Maybe it occasionally does. So yeah, I, I guess I don't... I don't know for sure. Good question. Yeah. Um, two, two ways to approach this would be for your own study. Uh, look up the meaning of envy and the meaning of jealousy in one of two locations, just normal dictionaries and usage, as well as possibly looking up the terms if you have access to like the, the Greek 
you know, resources, then you can check that out and see those terms or Hebrew in the Old and New Testament. See the words that are translated that way. And if you want a biblical view of those passages, you could, um, and of course, there's a lot more research that could be done on this, but a simple way to do it is just look up the word envy, look at every time it's used in the Bible and look up the word jealousy, look at every time it's used in the Bible and compile your own understanding of how those terms do and don't overlap. Let's look at question number eight. This comes in from Leslie Johnson, who says, First John 4 says to test the spirits, but Mary's husband Joseph didn't appear to do this when he had the dream to flee to Egypt. How should we understand or, in, or, or, or uh, interpret this? So Leslie, um, we are told to test the spirits because not every spirit is from God. That's First John 4. I'll, I'll put that on screen for everybody. Uh, I said five, but I, I meant four. Um, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God or not, or from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then it gives some ways of actually testing these spirits, um, which is more, I'll just mention in passing, is a lot more of a theological test than people think. It's not every spirit that says the name Jesus Christ is, has, or the phrase has come in the flesh. Is every spirit that agrees with these doctrinal teachings that Jesus is the Christ, all of that doctrinal baggage that comes with that, and that he has indeed come in the flesh, which implies his death and his resurrection and all those other things that Jesus did. So there's a whole lot that's going on there about the, the gospel. Um, at any rate, Joseph gets a, gets a, a dream um, where he's warned to flee. Um, that, that's what you're referring to is the, the dream to flee to Egypt in particular. Well, that dream came after several other things already happened where God indeed had sort of confirmed to him. So he had his his wife who's with child and she could tell tell him of who, you know, now she has a baby at this point, which she has the dream. She's she, she he knows her story of God speaking to her and making her pregnant and all this. Um he also knows that that was confirmed when when an angel was like freaked him out, was like, "Hey, don't be scared, but this is all from the Lord. This is what God is doing. Then he also has biblical support for the, the Bethlehem and the descendant of David. Then he has these, these shepherds who show up, you know, who are like, yep, God spoke to us too. And it's all in honor of the, the messianic promises of the Old Testament. Then he has the, the Magi who, who come at a certain point and they visit as well. And they can talk about how it's the star and you know, he, we know this is the king of Israel, all of the messianic connections there. So David has, or Joseph has all of this stuff. Then he has a dream in concert with all that, warning him to flee to Egypt. Um, so I think that there's, there's a lot more he's got going on. But I also would say this. Sometimes we read these, these passages in the scripture and we think that when we read about what happened, that's all that ever happened. But by the sheer force of reality... <laughs> There's never going to be a full accounting of any story in the Bible. There's always more details that aren't there. Now, you'll never have details that conflict with the details in the Bible, but you will definitely have more information that's not recorded. So we don't know. Like, for instance, we know Gideon put out a fleece to, to test in some sense. We don't know if there was some sort of testing that went on um, in addition to what happened there. But I'll say this as well. 1 John 4 is hard to apply. Um directly to the stuff Joseph went through. Joseph couldn't test the teachings and the things he was getting basically from like flee to Egypt. He couldn't test that against the doctrine of Jesus Christ fully revealed as it was when first John four was written because that stuff wasn't known yet. Now, 
I can test any future word where someone shares something. I can test it with the entire counsel of God's word, Old Testament, New Testament, all the revelation of Jesus. Um, and Jesus is, is the center point of all that. So he's the ultimate prime test. Joseph would have had to have tested with messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, with the, the nature of the God of Israel. So if the angel had said, your wife is with child and he would be the son of Zeus, then he would know, now this isn't from God, right? Like this is inconsistent with that Old Testament revelation that God has given us. So there's, a, there's still a testing he could do, just not as full of a testing as we can do today. All right, let's go to the next question. Question number nine. Um, an anonymous question here says, can you get saved whenever? Question mark. My church teaches that God must first knock on your heart before you can respond and accept salvation. This leads to some wanting to be saved, but waiting. Oh, that sounds weird, man. <laughs> um, um, what does that mean? Um, okay, let, I don't, I don't, I legit am confused as to what they even think that means. Um, let me, let me go to the passage. So, Frequently, this idea of standing at the door and knocking in the, in the scripture is taken to be a reference to Jesus offering salvation to people who don't who who are yet to receive it. Um, and your church has gone way several steps beyond based on your 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 summary. Okay, from what I get from your question, um, they've gone way beyond that. So they they've added extra baggage. So knocking is not only Jesus asking for salvation specifically, like you know, as in he no, he knocks on the doors of people's homes who are not saved. And then they receive him, they get saved. But also, you have to wait until you experience some version of knocking that apparently is meant to be like, I feel God knocking. That's adding a ton of baggage to the idea of Jesus knocking at the door that isn't in the passage and isn't in the scripture. You don't, there's no, this sense of feeling like you're adding a lot of meaning to knocking at the door that's not there in, in the text. Um, and, and then you're also asking that people cannot be saved until they have the feeling of Jesus knocking, which only happens to non-safe people, which is always some perceptive, ooh, I know what that knocking feels like. And then a bunch of people, of course, are just like in despair because they're going, I don't feel the knocking. I don't know what that knocking means. This is an example of an unbiblical teaching that seems like it could very easily bring a lot of harm and insecurity to people who believe in Jesus, right, for salvation, and yet they have no security because of it. Let's look at it in context. Jesus's letters to the churches in Revelation. They're called the churches. They are not treated as non-believers, but infrequently, frequently they're treated as problematic Christians. Okay, so here's a problematic Christian church. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, Jesus speaking here, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works that you are neither hot nor cold. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you were lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, you might argue, is that losing salvation or is that just losing your sort of place as uh, an effective witness or something? Whatever it is, you're in his mouth now and he hasn't vomited you out yet. That's the idea. Uh, because you say, I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not, do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. He's going to fix all those problems. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Jesus loves them. 
He's rebuking them. He's chastening them. They're in great danger here, but they are being chastened by the Lord. Like Hebrews 12 says that if you're chastened by the Lord, you know, you are, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. Hebrews 12, 6 says that implies something there, at least, uh, if we can parallel those two ideas. Therefore, be zealous and repent. He still calls these, I think, Christians to repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Okay. The knocking seems to be the knocking on the door of compromised Christians. At least, at least corporately, the church is corporately compromised. And he's like, hey, let me in. And I will come and I will dine with you. But he doesn't say, here are several things. He does not say, um, if I stand at the door and knock, anyone who hears and opens the door will, you know, will be saved. He says, I already am standing at the door knocking. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him. He's already in the position of standing at the door and knocking. Like this doctrine or this belief that Jesus is only knocking. If you feel the sensation or if some others, this, this misses the message of the gospel. Jesus goes, preach the gospel to all the world so that, you know, they go, hey, turn from, from sin to God and believe in Jesus Christ. If you feel the knocking of the, you know, this, this totally cuts the gospel message off and makes it only applicable to people who have a special feeling, which is, how do you validate that anyways? Probably only the most emotional people in your congregation feel that they have the door, the knocking, or at least they're the most likely ones, right? Because they tend to be the ones who are more on the feeling experience of things. Oh, this just seems super unhealthy. I'm so sorry people are saying this. There's nothing, I don't think anything biblical about it. At least as you've described it in your question, okay, it may be that the, the actual teaching of the church is a little different than how I've understood it from your question, in which case my answer would have to be filtered and thought through very carefully. Number 10, Ashley Graham says, um, a local UMC, United Methodist Church, pastor preached Matthew 18, 21 to 35. She, the pastor was a female, she said scholars say Matthew added verses 34 and 35. The master and the master does not represent God. I've never heard this, and it sounds concerning. Any insights? Let's go look at the passage. I, I'm. This is something I might. I might have to look more into. But uh, let me just take you straight to Matthew eighteen thirty four. These verses. Um, here you go. So Matthew eighteen thirty four and thirty five. She says these verses were added. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So, so she thinks that it's supposed to end at verse 33. And should you not now have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have mercy on you? Interesting. So, so what she wants to do is remove the idea that you have to... You know, if you if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven, which is a, a teaching of Jesus. You don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Um, <clears throat> well, even if you removed it here, you'd have to you have, you'd have to remove it from other places like the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus says after the prayer, he's like, for if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. So that, that teaching is still intact either way. But do scholars actually say this? Well, look, here's the ESV. There's, there's no textual footnote. Um, I'm looking at the footnotes here. Usually there's a textual footnote if they go, hey, in some manuscripts, this verse is not found. Here's the New King James Version, right? Um, those verses are still there. 
There is no textual footnote. There's a textual footnote on the word trespasses here. New King James says, hey, some um, manuscripts omit trespasses. And so the current thinking amongst more, um, the, well, I'll just say some manuscripts omit that's too much, too much information. Um, uh, there's here's the new King, the, sorry, new international version NIV. There's no footnote for 34, 35 to suggest this RSV of all of them. You think the RSV would be the one to be like, Hey, guess what? No footnote there. When she says scholars think this, does she, what does she mean? Like two scholars on planet earth? <laughs> Who are they? Who thinks this? Where's their evidence? I mean, if I have more time, I could do, um, uh, check actually for any variants and stuff on these, on these passages. Um, the NET Bible is a good resource for study notes and things like that, where they have content like that on it. But, but yeah, the, the, on this, on the surface, I'll say she's probably just being a false resource. <laughs> um, but aside from that, I mean, United Methodist Church, uh, I have a friend who's a pastor in the United Methodist Church, uh, who he's solid. Okay. So they're not all like all the leaders are not like this, but but the quantity of bad teaching that's going on in the United Methodist Church is shocking and alarming, and it's so pervasive that it's scary. Okay, so it's not all of them, but it, it's happening a lot, and it's something you should be aware of. All right, let's go to question number 11. Max G says, Hi, Pastor Mike. Why didn't Jesus water baptize anyone himself? Uh, he couldn't swim, obviously. Uh, just kidding. John 4, 2, which says that he didn't baptize, but his disciples did. Uh, thank you for your ministry. It's been a huge blessing to me. God bless you. Okay, so do we have a clear answer? Is there, By the way, thanks, man. <laughs> I'm like already on your question. Uh, I'm super stoked that my ministry has been a huge blessing to you. Um, it means the world to me. It really does. So, Max, I praise the Lord for that. Um, why didn't Jesus water baptize anybody? Okay, so again, we're left in the realm of somewhat conjecture because we don't have any clear verse that says why he didn't water baptize. We do know this, though. Here's a few things that will maybe add clues. When Jesus, or when when Paul the Apostle wrote to the Corinthians, he talked about who baptized who. And he talked about it in the context of they were having divisions and sectarian views. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I, they were saying they're from these, like, I'm a Christian, but I'm of this kind of Christian and that kind of Christian. And this can happen with denominational and sectarian thinking. Um, don't think it's just denominations. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church is sectarian <laughs> in its very nature. Um, and and they're, I'm of Rome. <laughs> That's pretty much the nature of the of the claim. Um, and so we have to be aware of this stuff. And, and Paul brought up baptism in this regard because he was like, hey, some of you guys are like, well, I got baptized by Paul, so I'm sort of like better in some sense than these other Christians that weren't. And Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize very many of you. I mean, I baptized a few I can think of. I can't remember who else I baptized, but I didn't baptize too many of you. And I'm glad because it had, it had developed into this sectarian thing about bragging rights for who baptized you. So that's a biblical issue. It's possible Jesus was avoiding that issue. That's what I would say is my conjecture. Jesus is like, hey, if I baptize people, but then also the disciples do, Whoever I baptize personally, it might turn into this sort of fight later on. And I don't want that sectarianism going on. Plus, Jesus wants to make sure that after he departs, his disciples, the apostles, have the authoritative teaching role they should have in the church. And if there were people who go, yeah, well, you say that, but Jesus himself baptized me and I think this, it might have created rivals to the apostles because only some people could claim Jesus baptized them. There's a second related issue that I will conjecture as to why Jesus wouldn't baptize people directly. Um... 
A third thing is that there's a distinction between Jesus's baptism and John's. John goes, I baptize you with water, but he'll baptize you with the, with the spirit. And then he says, and fire. I think the fire is actually judgment that was coming for those who would reject him. But he's going to baptize in the spirit. Jesus water baptizing people might, might muddy that distinction, but Jesus never giving, a, he required water baptism for people, right? But never giving them a water baptism. It emphasizes that the baptism Jesus gives he does for everyone, and he does when he gives you the Holy Spirit. Every Christian is baptized in that sense. We have the Holy Spirit. And so him not water baptizing emphasizes that super important thing that John talked about as a contrast to his water baptism, Jesus giving you the Holy Spirit. Um, the only the only thing that comes to mind other than that um, is that if Jesus was doing baptisms, it could, physically doing baptisms, um, Maybe he would have less time to teach. It could, there could be pragmatic concerns. Maybe he'd have less time to teach because there'd be so many people wanting to get baptized. Also, um, it might cause some infighting about who wants to push for Jesus. I'm going to wait in the line for Jesus. I don't care if it takes three days. You know, I don't want, I don't want, you know, this guy, Peter over here to, to baptize me. Um, uh, so it could have been an issue of logistics like that by having all these guys to baptize while Jesus is teaching. That could be more convenient. And finally, um, Oh, there was one other thing that popped into my head. What was it? I mean, have I given you enough already? <laughs> um, what was it? Oh, there was something else and it's gone now. Oh, well, I think I gave you enough. There's enough reasons that, um, that I think might bring some clarity there. Number 12, Tim Eichhorst says, are there situations or groups of people for whom we should share the gospel? Um, oh, shouldn't. I read you wrong. Are there situations or groups of people for whom we should not share the gospel? Acts 16 verses 6 through 7 seems to say so, but I'd love to hear your insight on the topic and your interpretation of the passage. Let's look at the Acts passage. And I, um, I personally am not one for super hard and fast rules, like always share the gospel everywhere. I think that as a as a general idea true but as a super hard and fast rule where you wouldn't really put that into every circumstance then you have a woman who's in labor and her doctor's you know delivering the baby and she's like and then jesus rose from the dead three days later and she's shouting out the gospel at all circumstances and maybe you meet someone at the gas station and they're across from you and you preach the gospel then there maybe obviously there'll be some benefit if people always preach the gospel everywhere but there would also be a hindrance because of the, the clanging noise that it would sound like to the world if, if that's all we ever did at all times and all places, although it should be a preoccupation of ours. Anyway, I'm just saying it. Um, there are circumstances, you know, you're at a police in interrogation and they're like, we found you at the scene of the crime. What, uh, where, you know, where were you an hour before that? Do you have an alibi? And you go, Jesus died and rose again. And, and you won't answer their questions. Like you're at a job interview and all you do is preach the gospel. So you don't, you obviously don't get the job. You, uh, you can't take the order for the person who's ordering food for, at your work because all you do is preach the gospel. Like Obviously, there's a, there are situations where you shouldn't. You shouldn't do anything except the thing you're supposed to do in that scenario. But let's look at the passage. Acts 16, 6, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Uh, and when they had come opposite Mysia, or they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Interesting. Actually, I'm on the RSV right now. Let, let me read this, bring you back to the ESV. I just don't want to be confused about this. Um, uh, first off, I just want to say the Holy Spirit forbid them. And then the spirit of Jesus, right? Because, yeah, because Jesus is God. Okay. Anyway, because um, you could also say the spirit of God, 
as the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. Anyway, it's just an interesting uh, uh, deity of Christ passage. And by the way, guys, thanks for thanks for that. <laughs> Helps reach people. Um, okay. Your question is, hey, is it because it was wrong to preach the gospel to, in Asia? Um, I don't think so. I, I think rather it was about what happened next. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia, which is neither of those other places, Macedonia was standing there urging him saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So it's not like God's like, don't preach to people in Asia or, you know, Bithynia, right? No, no, no. It's not about not preaching here. It's about doing this. Interesting how it happened. Like Paul didn't know where to go. He tried to go to Asia, but they couldn't. He tried to go to Mysia, but they couldn't. And then, um, or they tried to go to Bithynia rather, but they, but they weren't allowed somehow. And finally, he gets revealed to them where he should go. It's not really an example of when not to preach the gospel. It's more about where to preach the gospel. Like there's, there's God has a plan. There's a reason for it. God wants him to go there. So you follow the leading of the Lord. Otherwise, Paul was on a mission to go to whatever biggest city he could find to reach the most people he could find. And that's a fine mission to be on unless the Lord directs you otherwise. Um, so yeah, um, I hope that answers the question. I don't think this passage weighs in on it directly. Um, but yeah. Hope that answers it. Uh, question number 13. This is from Micah Atwater, who says, Does a husband being the head of the wife actually mean he does? Question mark. Oh, what does it mean he does? I, I missed one of your words. Uh, I don't find any actionable steps or clear examples in the Bible. Does he boss her around or just be a good man? Um, well, I mean, he doesn't boss her around. So, so let's just zoom out for a second and understand that there's a biblical view of leadership and authority that Jesus was really, really serious about. And he goes, Hey, don't Lord it, you know, for your leaders, don't Lord it over people. You want to be great, be the servant of all husbands, love your wife self-sacrificially, you know, concerning yourself with their needs greater than yourself. As in, if one of us has to suffer, I'm gonna make a decision about who it is. It's me. It's me. I haven't always followed that rule, but that is the rule. I've just failed sometimes. So I think as a, as a, as a husband, what, what the world hears is we go, the husband is the head of the wife. And so he is in a higher, and I, I try to be careful with my words here in a higher position of authority, not the only position of authority. He's not the only authority in the home. The wife is an authority in the home and she's, and a woman is an authority on the earth. She has dominion over the planet. Okay. She's an authority. She's a very high authority made in the image of God, co-heir with Christ, light of the world, all of those truths. In the home, a husband, in my biblical view, which I am totally convinced is biblical here, I'm not ashamed or nervous about calling it the biblical view, is that the husband is the head of the wife in that he has a higher role of authority than she does. She still has an authority. So when you have two authorities, one who's higher than the other, and they disagree, the deciding vote would go with the one who has the higher authority. But you also have Jesus's command for the husband to make these decisions with grace and love, self-sacrificially seeking to sanctify his home and his environment himself, even see his wife sanctified and that he's going to be doing this all. So bossing her around is a, is while, um, while many people think the husband's higher role equals he, he bosses her around and even some usually nominal 
weak sauce Christians believe this and do this. Um, the biblical view is that that is a violation of Jesus's rules that he gives for all his disciples. You want to be great, be a servant. Yeah, you you want to you want to you want to be a leader. You can't lord it over people. So there can't be this abuse of authority. All abuse of authority is unbiblical, unchristian, unchristlike, especially a husband's. Why do I say especially a husband's? Because the husband is a picture of Christ in the church. Jesus would never be cruel, be mean, be selfish in regards to the church. He will always do right and be, and be good. But we're not to think of it as like a, a father to a child, like a man with his wife, like because a woman is an authority in the home. Right. There's even Paul even uses the term about a woman managing, ruling her own household. She's not ruling her husband, but she's ruling her own household. So she's an authority in the home. The husband is as well. He is the head, meaning representative and a higher authority, but not only authority in that relationship. So I think um, that might help. What does this look like? It looks like Jesus. I'm going to lead well with my eyes on God with my focus on the kingdom, and then I'm going to help our house be moving in that direction as well. But I will do it with grace and love and kindness and gentleness. Um, look at how Paul instructs Timothy when he deals with elders. While Timothy has authority over the elders, he goes, you know, uh, older men here, not just elders in leadership, but older men. And he goes, don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. That he's to treat these older men, exhort him as a father, don't rebuke. So the husband should have this gracious attitude towards his wife. Um, Timothy has authority over the young men and the older and the younger women as well. And he goes, treat younger women as sisters. Treat older women as mothers. So there's this massive respect. This is the big word, the R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Find out what it means to the Bible. <laughs> Sorry, that was so dumb. Um, but the idea is massive respect Maybe that's the big word that I should lean on here between husband and wife, where the wife respects her husband as the head. He respects her as a sister in Christ, as a co-heir, as light of the world, as a, one who has dominion over the earth, um, as a human who's made in the very image of God. And he treats her with the love that Christ does. When you have a man who understands that version of his leadership, you have a man who is hopefully always striving to self-correct his natural, egotistical rude, selfish, insecure behaviors that so easily rise up as soon as you become a leader anywhere. I know, because I've been that. So let's go to question number 14. Illegally Blind says, how do we know we individually are meant to serve the Lord? Um, I think we know it individually because we know it corporately. It's, it's, the, it's the entire, I'll, I'll, take you to, I'll take you to a passage here for you. Um, if it's true of every Christian, then it's true of you. So, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works. What's the place of works? Well, it doesn't save me so that we may not, so that no one may boast, right? If, if at any point my salvation is, is dependent on my works, even if it's a mixture of grace and works, it's dependent on my works, I can boast because I did that part. For we are his workmanship. And then we get into the part you're asking about. For we are his workmanship. God's working in you. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. A corporate truth about everyone is an individual truth about everyone too. If you believe in Jesus, God has works specifically he wants you to walk in. Don't worry about figuring out what they are. Just go out and do good works for the Lord so that you are serving. 
Now, it's possible you meant um, when you're asking, how do I know I'm supposed to serve the Lord as in being in ministry in the local church? I think that is a question you don't ever have to answer. Um, I think what you do is you just serve as much as you can wherever you are. And if the local church happens to see gifts in you, the leadership, the other people around you, then they will either A, just sort of come to you with those needs. Like, let's say you have a teaching gift, but you're never asked to teach, but people just keep coming to you. Hey, can you explain this to me? Or, hey, I'm confused by this. They just naturally see it in you. So they start asking you questions and you start explaining things. Um, or, or maybe they officially ask you to step into things. Um, basically, I think this, you don't need a special calling in your life to do ministry that you're aware of. It can happen and it's great if it, if it comes. What you do need is the calling of God in your life to serve the Lord however you can, wherever you are, and then the wisdom to couple that with whatever you end up being good at. Maybe you're just good at business, so that's how you serve God. You're good at business. Maybe you're good at teaching, so you serve God in the teaching capacity. Maybe you're a good counselor, so you serve God counseling in the church. Maybe you're good at helping people when they're going through hard times. You have just incredible compassion for those who are hurting. And so you're you're taking care of people who are invalids in the home and in, in their homes, um, people who are on hard times. M maybe you are just bent towards being good at gathering the resources of others to help people. So you start doing like um, uh, a care ministry where you, you're gathering resources, food and money and stuff, and you're just finding people that need it and helping them with it. Uh, my point is that you, you're called to serve. You don't need a special calling to serve in a, in a certain capacity. You just start doing stuff and then keep doing what you're good at. Uh, maybe God will show you something special, but the scripture doesn't tell you you need that. So I don't want to put that on anybody. 15, question 15, Myth the Beard King. Myth the Beard King says, I've recently seen Inspiring Philosophy's video on Genesis 1. I have not seen that. Uh, he says that it's most likely mirroring the Near East tradition of assigning purpose rather than actual creation thought. I think that's John Walton's view. Um, I got his book somewhere here and I've, I've not read the whole thing. Um, but I think that's John Walton's view that in naming um, in Genesis where it says, <clears throat> you know, God... Uh, I'll, I'll, let me put it, I'll put it in front of us so that we can, we can look at it. Um, so God says, let there be light. And there was light. Um, and God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness and God called or named the light day and the darkness he called night. There was evening and morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse, right? And God, um, hold on. Where's the next naming event here? Uh, he called the expanse heaven, right? Different translations. You, I know people are already debating in the comments on that. Um, and uh, then you have the second day. Then God says, let the waters do this. And then God called the dry land earth. So he's naming things. And that when he names things, sun and moon and all this stuff, they're not coming into existence. This is the idea as I understand it. Forgive me if I misunderstand it. It's been a while since I looked into Walton's stuff. Um and I think inspiring philosophy could be wrong about that as well. Take it all with a big giant grain of salt or maybe a spoonful. Um, but he's like, yeah, the, the naming thing, it, what it means is there's room here for the idea that, that the sun, the moon, the stars, all these things already existed at the point at which it says they were created. They're just being named, meaning that, and as I've heard John Walton say it, I think it's something along these lines in the ancient Hebrew thinking here, um, something doesn't exist in a sense until it has a function and you're naming it, you're assigning it a function. You're, you're, it's going to assign light. It's going to be a, a, a light for the night or light for the day. You're giving it a function. Now it's sort of in a sense, 
not in the literal typical sense you and me think of, but in a sense, it's now it exists. Um, that's how I understand Walton's view. Now he has a lot of other stuff he's going to offer for support for this view. So if you're like, that sounds weak sauce, like I, I don't agree with it either, but there's a lot more to it than that. Don't think that you've heard the case for it. I'm just trying to give you a, a general idea so I can try to answer the question. Um, he says it's most likely mirroring the Near East tradition of assigning purpose rather than actual creation. My basic thought on, on these things, I'm open on Genesis one. I'm, I'm, I'm wide open. Okay. I'm open to different views. I believe Genesis one. I'm open to views on how to interpret it properly. I'm, I'm not alone in this. A lot of believers are like this, even believers in churches where they feel like they're not allowed to say that out loud. <laughs> um, I'm open. Okay. I don't know. Um, but I'm not open to the idea that it's just plain wrong. I'm not, I'm not like, maybe it's just, it's totally in question. That's not the thing that I'm like debating in my head at all. It's rather just the proper interpretation. So I've looked somewhat into John Walton. I've looked at like, say, uh, answers in Genesis stuff. Um, I've looked into, um, uh, what's, who's somebody else? Uh, William Lane Craig stuff where he talks about this. Um, I've looked into the gap theory and the day age theory, um, like, um, Hugh Ross, his stuff, uh, reasons reasons to believe that ministry. They they have like a I think a progressive creationist view, and so Walden is one of the many views that's there. I I think that his view doesn't seem right to me. It seems like it's not giving full credit to the text as it's written because the language isn't just speaking about function. It's speaking. Of, it seems to me about existence when it talks about these things. Of the views that I've heard um, that I'm probably most <clears throat> open to personally, like I'm just I, I'm just sharing with with you guys. This is part of my journey. I still don't know my answers on these issues. It's going to take I don't know how many years for me to figure it out. And if I ever do, I will share with you in detail. OK, so all my cards are on the table here. Um, I'm not I'm not the one you have to follow on these issues at all. And you could and, and the, the truth is one of these views or another view that I haven't mentioned is correct. And all the other ones are wrong. And in, in such as they're wrong, they're kind of a waste of time. So I, I don't enjoy just trotting this stuff out for people, but you asked about it. So let's, I have to discuss it from where I'm at. I don't think it helps to just mention 50 views and walk away. Like you've clarified things for people. I don't think that's helpful. I just don't have the right answers. So I, I can't go further. Um, but of these views, uh, Walton's view seems to me pretty weak in general. Okay. As, as from what I've understood and I'm, and I don't hold to it. Um, those who hold to it, let's say that uh, my friend, Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy, who I consider a friend, we're not maybe close, but we were, we're friends. And um, I, I would consider him uh, just a genuine believer. I wouldn't question his, his trust in scripture or his belief in God or anything like that because of these differences. Um, I think that the young earth creationist view has a lot going for it, um, but it does have some significant problems, I think. Not, and I'm not talking about scientifically. I mean, in the text, I think it has some spe some specific problems. I, I think it doesn't give enough credence to the way that the text reads and how it looks. And forgive me, I'm trying. I'm not trying to make a case for this. I'm just giving you my, my overview. Um, the day age theory, the progressive or the progressive Christian, not progressive Christian, but progressive creation view, also feels like it's stretching a lot. Okay, it feels like. It doesn't feel like that's the meaning of the text. It, like I need a lot more to be convinced that that's the right view. I tend to, to not think super highly of it. The gap theory um, that between Genesis one and two, that there's like this 
recreation thing. I've looked into this. I know people do hold this view in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth and the earth. They kind of look at it became without form and void. It's like there's this gap, right? And may, maybe that was the fall of Satan that destroyed and decimated the earth. And so then that's going to create any any number of ages and evolutionary events and all this other sort of thing. Um, I don't think that does justice to the text. I think that gen, I think that one one is an overview, right? And then one two through the rest is a description of that event. The beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So I, I don't think that works. I don't think that became functions here well. My personal opinion, no, nah, I don't. I don't think so. I know there's a whole without form and void statement about like God didn't create it that way. That's not good. And I, I'm I think that's a pretty weak argument. Um, and then um, William Lane Craig's recent book where he talks about this, I, I haven't read his stuff on the science behind, you know, fossils and how far back does he identify his view of the historic Adam. But I think that at least his perspective of going at Genesis 1 and 1 through 11 and trying to do a genre analysis where he identifies it as like um, this typological, historical, but not totally literal account where there's a real Adam and Eve and all that, but that, but, but that this is typological. That's my, my word I'm using, not his. Um, I think that that has at least potential. I'm not convinced of it yet. I would want to look at more ancient stories that prove that this genre is a real and known thing at the time. And I haven't spent the time looking at those ancient stories, not because I think Genesis borrowed from them. No, no. But if genres, if the genre exists and it's a real genre with you guys, I'm, I might be talking past you. I'm not intending to I'm trying to summarize and not doing a good job. He thinks Genesis 1 through 11 is kind of this like genre where there's like this sort of uh, flexibility in the text where where the core elements are basically that's what happened, but it's told in a story fashion so as to reinforce the theological principles that may or may not may or may not mean that every aspect of it is meant to be direct history. If he's right about the genre, that's actually a, a I, I would be very open to that view. Is he right? I don't know. I don't know. Um, and everybody's arguing about this online, but I'm not really involved in it right now because I'm studying other stuff. So maybe one day I'll come back to it. So I'm sorry I can't give you more into that. Um, th there's at least some thoughts I have to share with you guys. I hope I didn't just waste your time. Uh, let's look at the next question. This is from Adam Rose, who says, <clears throat> I'm currently studying Song of Solomon, and I was wondering, do you believe that it represents Christ and the church? I have an issue with that as the book describes a sexual relationship. Okay, Song of Solomon. Um, do I think it describes or represents Christ in the church? I think that that there's a yes and a no I can give there. Um, I think that it represents a, a man and woman's relationship, and it describes a sexual relationship. Yep, that's true. It's 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 about two people that want to be together in the fullness of what it means for man and woman to be together. So I think it describes a man and woman, not Christ in the church. I do, taking a step back, I wouldn't exactly say represents Christ in the church, but I would say husband and wife marriage is a representation of Jesus in the church. And that is throughout, like that is an overarching thing we can say about the scriptures. So Adam and Eve is the first marriage and we have Eve is taken from, Adam is put into a deep sleep and Eve's taken from his side. And then Eve is formed from Adam. And then he looks at her and he sees her as, you know, this, this is, this is the one who's formed from me. You know, she shall be called woman. Well, Christ is put to death. His side is opened by the spear and 
from it, blood and water pour out. And, and through the blood of Christ, we are born again. We are saved, we're washed clean, and we become the bride of Christ the church. Is that, um, that's a typological thing. It's so Genesis 2 there is, in, is about Adam and Eve, but there's a typological connection to tr- Christ and the church. There's a typological, that's the term I'll use here. It's a theological term. Typological connection between, um, you know, Song of Solomon and Christ in the church. And this is something that has been seen for many years. The earliest commentaries would talk about this. But the thing about typology is it's not always a perfect correspondence. And it's not like every element of it corresponds. And obviously a lot of the Song of Solomon is about the physical desires between men and women for each other. And that is not really very related to Christ in the church. Right, because he's redeeming for a people. He, it, we're not his bride in that sense, right? Where it starts to move into like sexual terminology. No, 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 no. We're we're more like Adam and Eve in Genesis two, where there's there's no real, there's nothing erotic going on there, and yet it ends up being this incredible picture of the the fellowship and the unity and the and the salvation that we have in Christ. Um, so yeah, I I think that Song of Solomon is primarily about other things. There's a type typological connection between man and woman and, and Christ in the church, but it shouldn't be pressed into most of the areas where Song of Solomon dwells. There's an occasional moment where you read and you go like, man, this like feels like it could just totally be between Jesus and the church, but you just can't read the whole thing that way, uh, in, in my view. Um, there's my answer on it. It's initially, just like Genesis 2 is initially about Adam and Eve, it is initially about a man and a, and a woman, and that's its primary thing. Because Jesus is throughout the scriptures, there's a typological element, but you don't try to read it into every verse. Um, chapter, chapter, question 17. Sheepish Wolf says, that's, that's an interesting thing. I'm a Christian converted this year. Well, congratulations and welcome to the family of God. I have felt the Holy Spirit inspire me to live a better life in many ways, but I struggle still with one thing. I'm gay and I struggle to see how my attraction could change. Oh man. Well, I mean, I'm probably not the best person to ask about this. Um, it's not a personal struggle I've gone through. Um, and it would, I would be a better, I would be in a better place to minister to you about it. If, if it was, I would encourage you to look up, uh, Christopher Yuan, um, who I think his name is, is it why you owe it? I spelled his name wrong the other day on accident. Um, anyway, I would look up Christopher Yuan. Um, his, uh, he has a book called Holy Sexuality, and he's um, a man who is still experiences same-sex attraction and has for many years lived a gay lifestyle, came out of it, came to Christ, life totally transformed, wonderful testimony, wonderful guy. And I would recommend you read his book. Um, I'm just going to make sure. Yeah, why you... A N. That was that was what I got wrong. Yeah, Christopher Yuan. Um, he has a book. He's got a, other stuff he does as well. Check that out, please. Check that out. And this is something for you. I think, biblically speaking, what I can say, right, not knowing all that might be going going on there, is that changing your attraction is a is a would be a great thing, something that you would understandably desire, but it's not required as a Christian. Uh, Making it so that you no longer desire sin is a desire every Christian has. I don't want to want sin. Like, I, I don't want to be tempted with anger or lust or any of the other things that I am tempted with in my life. I'd like those desires to just change, right? Where the only woman I would ever even 
even occur to me to desire would just only be my wife. Like that would be, that would be great. I would love that. But I can't manage to make that happen. All I can do is die to myself, make sure I don't take the first look, make sure I don't have a, a fan, fantasizing thought, make sure I don't take one step down that path of feeding those desires. Um, that's all I can do. I can't fix the desire itself. So I, I kind of usually look at this this issue of same-sex attraction as like that. I want those desires to go away too. Um, I know it's different. It's not. It's not. It's not parallel because you're like, but it's a desire you can never fulfill. And I, I get that. But that's every sin. Every sin is ends up being unfulfilled. Even the moment after you fulfill it, you're right back to where you wanted again. It's unfulfilled. This is the nature of sin. It's never fulfilled. So, don't think you have to change your desires in order to obey Jesus fully and completely. You just have to not feed them, not yield into them as a fantasy, not uh, create opportunities for sinning you know, according to those desires, that sort of thing. But check out Christopher Yuan's book. <clears throat> I think it's called Holy Sexuality. Yeah. Let's go to question number 18. I'll link it below. I'll put, I'll put a book link below after the, after the, uh, the stream's over, which it will be soon. Uh, Naya 29 says the Bible is clear on its stance with sorcery and, and witchcraft. My husband and I play D and D uh, that's the, it's short for Dungeons and Dragons, the role-playing game. And some people were having some issues with this and potentially books with magic. What are your thoughts? Well, I don't know what you mean by books with magic. Oh, oh, like Harry Potter, like that kind of thing. Yeah, okay. Not So there's... <clears throat> l let me put it this way. There's Here's how I understand the issue. You all are free to disagree, okay? You're asking for my opinion here. Um, obviously, D&D didn't exist in the ancient times. When... Okay, let me start by saying this. There's a distinction we have to have clear in our heads to just think accurately about this. There's make-believe magic in the realm of fantasy make-believe. Then there's magic where people are trying to actually, uh, through satanic forces, demonic powers, trying to actually do magic. Much of it maybe is a fraud, um, but it's connected to reality. It's anchored in reality in the sense that it's meant to be real. Then there's magic that's anchored in fantasy in the sense that everybody recognizes this is fake. We're not trying to, hopefully we're not trying to parallel the two. Um, so an example of this would be a magician who shows up and pulls a rabbit out of a hat. He's pretending to use magic, but he's nothing like the magicians of the, of the, the scripture talks about, like the Pharaoh's magicians, right? Where they're trying to like reproduce the miracles that, um, that are being done by Moses. Um, they're nothing like that. That everybody knows this is a trick, and you're like trying to figure out how he did it, and you're just amazed by it. To me, I I understand those distinctions, and so a magician doesn't bother me at all. What no, about? I, get that. Could oh, you try I, I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> My watch. <laughs> Sorry, sometimes that happens. Um, like magic. Um, so that kind of thing is obviously not this kind of thing, and the question is. Are they sufficiently different so that the biblical mandates about magic and witchcraft don't apply to the fantasy realm? I think the answer is a tentative yes. Okay, I think that that's the answer. Now, if your convictions are that I know they're not, then you need to obey that as convictions. But if you're going to put it as a rule for all Christians, then you need to make sure that that's the reality. It's not just how you feel about it. I think the reality is that there's a difference between the fantasy versus the um the, the 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 magic anchored in reality stuff i'm not saying that magicians are doing what they think they're doing but they're they're actually trying to do witchcraft like actual witchcraft um now it can bleed over some cases the the, the witchcraft in books and in games it's made to model after real witchcraft in which case you're like at what point do you say 
that's too anchored in reality. Like that's, you know, you're not practicing witchcraft, but you, you are doing something that's glorifying a thing which God hates. Um, and I, th I think we can't, we can't be part of that. So is Harry Potter that? Well, I've heard this debate. Is Harry Potter that? Um, I haven't read the books, but I've heard people say that, <clears throat> that the author researched into real witchcraft and then that's where she got ideas and put it into the book. I don't know if that's true. Um, may it be up to your own conscience on this issue. Nobody watching, reading, or playing a video game of Harry Potter is actually doing any of the specific things that God forbid in the forbidding of magic and witchcraft in the Bible. But they might be in encountering something that's muddy enough that at least for them they can't do it, or maybe they think nobody should do it. And I I'm just going to say, when it comes to these slightly gray issues, I do not cast blankets of judgment on all Christians. I just go, ah, follow your conscience here. <clears throat> um, you're not specifically doing the thing the Bible forbid, so I'm going to leave it up to you. D&D um, &D actually has, um, to my knowledge, I, I, I did D&D &D when I was like a teenager, <clears throat> um, at least a few times with some friends of mine. And so I know that it has like requirements that you like do false gods, like that you're, and I remember thinking at the time as a young Christian, I was like, uh, I know I'm supposed to like have like a, a deity that my character like is associated with. Like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and my friends were like, okay, I guess, you know, and so we altered it slightly for that. And then I didn't think that like when my character threw like a magic missile and I, I don't play, I haven't played, you know, in, since I was a teenager, but, uh, when my character threw like a magic missile that it was, um, related to actual witchcraft. There was no conviction about that. I, I don't really think that that's the case. All right. Where do you draw the line? That's up to you. At least recognize there's a difference between known fantasy everyone accepts is in the fantasy realm versus actual witchcraft the Bible talks about and then move forward from there. Um, I wouldn't make a hard and fast rule on gray areas for all Christians, even though I would have when I was younger, but I've either become more wise or more compromised depending on what your perspective is. <laughs> Number 19, wake up 24 says notable exception. What is the best way? Oh, the, they don't say, no, that's their name. Wake up 24 notable exception. I have no idea where you come up with these names. What is the best way to date for marriage as a Christian? Is there a good way to sift through people to find someone equally yoked? Oh gosh, that's such a, such weird terminology, like sift through people. I don't know, man. Best way. I don't know. I, I think that the only things that really stick out to my mind are keeping um, your dating pure in the following ways. And otherwise there's probably a variety, like whether you do it online or if you date several people or you just get to know people for a really long time first. I don't have a rule there. Okay. Um, biblically speaking, there should be purity at all times. Um, so purity in, in the way you interact, the respect that you have and the, and the behaviors you do. Okay. Just cause you're thinking about someone that way doesn't mean that you get to just go and be all sexual with them. And it's not just the one act that's forbidden, but rather I think that we should have a higher standard for purity, biblically speaking, going and just like going to town with somebody it, it is not okay. That's not your wife. Um, it's not your husband. I think the Bible refers to this as defrauding your brother. You're defrauding them. Uh, that's an interesting thing to think about. And for, in first Thessalonians, I believe it is. So purity, so sexual purity, integrity in that genuine intentionality. I'm not dating them for fun. I'm dating them to see if I'm going to actually be married because otherwise you end up, this is just me speaking from personal experience. If you spend a ton of time being just friends and spending lots and lots of time with someone of the opposite sex who you have no intention of marrying, you're sort of, you're, the time you spend with them kind of makes a promise 
that you're not going to fulfill. And it, and especially and I've found, you know, I'd spend time with girls just as friends. And I didn't realize that, that that friendship was, was developing into romantic feelings on their part when it wasn't on mine. And it caused a lot of problems. I hurt, I hurt people. I didn't realize till years later that I just can't be that close to just girls. I just can't. So I, I keep a dist respectful distance between me and other girls. So don't be just thinking if you're single that you could just spend as much time and energy and focus and attention on girls as you want. There should be an intentionality that's there. And if it's not there, then you should create a respectful distance. I think that that's wisdom. Okay, I'm not making a hard and fast rule, but I think that that's just wisdom I've learned from life. Um, biblically speaking, we don't have a lot of rules there, but then they were always in cultures where, where men and women were way more segregated than they are today. And so their culture already did that for them. So we don't seem to have a biblical rule about it. Then beyond that, um, yeah, you, you, you just, you date not to, I mean, dating biblically is not a thing. There's just courtship. There's just marriage really. And whatever led right into marriage. So if, as long as what you're doing is for the sake of marriage and not for the sake of a good time, because you don't want to get married yet, um, then I think you're on the right track and you walk in purity and you walk in love. If you have that mindset going into a relationship with a girl or a guy that marriage is your end goal, your standards will already be really high. Because if all you're looking for is a boyfriend or girlfriend, your standards can be pretty low. But when you know you're looking for marriage, you set your standards much higher and it will cause you to move in the right direction. I probably should say more. That's all I got. Josh Silva says, hi, Mike. I've been wondering about the great commandment Jesus gives in Matthew 22, 36. First, let's read that passage, then we'll read the rest of your questions. So Matthew 22, 36. <clears throat> Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And then he talks about the second, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so you've been thinking about this and you say... It seems like a Deuteronomy 6 quote, but why does Jesus change the last the last quality from might to mind? Oh, oh gosh. I looked into this in detail at one point. Um, oh man, I looked at this in detail at one point. And I'll, I'll give you my broad strokes answer because I can't give you the details, I just don't recall. But basically the, the original text Deuteronomy it's, it's implying everything you love God with everything and so you could expand this into a list of one item two items three items 15 items because the you know you were supposed to love God encompassingly with all that you have love God with all that you've got so I could be like love God with your heart soul mind strength job skills time focus devotion family leisure days like i could i could add more to this list and it would not be in conflict with the with the concept of loving god with all all you've got um that's the the biggest broad stroke answer i can give and i would give more details but i can't remember them right now this is this is the sad thing to realize that you forget so many things that you learn yeah all right but i i hope i hope that helps the the, the application though is this um christians are not just to love god but we're to love God with. There's a difference here because loving God in concept is easy. Oh, I love God. It's like when people go, I love everybody. Like usually it's young people who say this. I love everybody. And I, I rarely hear older people say this. Like 50, 50 and above, nobody's like, I love everybody. Few people will say that. Um, 
but young people say, I love everybody, but, but it doesn't count if you can't love them with anything, right? Because you only love the idea of loving everybody. You don't actually love everybody. So loving, loving God with your heart, soul, mind, strength, job, family, etc., free time, fill in the blank. That is love expressed. It's not just love in concept. It's love that love that motivates, love that drives actions and activity. And so as a Christian, as a human, really, you should be like, do I love God? What do I love him with? That's a real important question. Um, all right, we'll go to the last question for today, which is a bonus question. This comes from Michael Faber, who says, were they really taking the hobbits to Isengard? Yes, they were. They were taking the hobbits to Isengard, to Isengard, to Isengard, right? Which we all know is where hobbits do not want to go generally speaking um anyways that's a lot that's all i got for today let me uh pray and give it last encouragement to you guys and then I'm, I'm out um father we thank you so much for the love that you've given us um we're called to love you with everything but jesus you loved us with everything you loved us with your heart your soul your mind your strength you loved us so so much you poured out your very life you took our sins upon yourself. You suffered the punishment that we deserved. When we were still sinners, you died for us. The the ungodly, the unthankful, the, the people who, who we, we failed so much, Lord, but you loved us and you lavished that love on us and you didn't call us to echo that love to others. We pray for that. We pray that you would help us to see how we can love you with all that we have, but also to love our neighbor as ourself, to treat them with incredible kindness grace, love. Teach us to be so selfless, Lord. Teach us to be like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, here, here's a quick last little update I'll, I'll share with you guys because this video is not long enough yet. Um, I uh, One of the random things that I've had to do in this stu long study on women in ministry as I'm rounding towards the conclusion of it here is um, <clears throat> try to come up with all the examples of this word used in Greek from around the time of Paul. So Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And that word, have authority, huge, huge debate over that. Well, it's only used like a handful of times around the time of Paul. It's a super rare word. And these, these times are all hotly debated. But one of the debates, one of the times is <laughs> it's used about a guy who hired a ferry to take his sheep. It, it appears across the Nile and... Um, and there's claims on both sides. So egalitarians going, you know, this word in, used in this papyrus, this ancient papyrus from before, just before the time of Paul, it's used in a negative way because it's about this this particular circumstance, the slave and the slave owner, and then this, da, da, da. and then someone else comes along and they go, no, it's used in a positive way. He's trying to say he did a good thing and he took authority and it was good. But nobody had translated this this document. So I'm just looking at this ancient papyrus. I can't read it. I'm not going to be able to translate it. So I was over the last few weeks, I wanted to work on this. I was able to hire somebody to translate this ancient papyrus that nobody has publicly translated before. There is no, there's, there's like a, this is like a contribution to scholarship. It's not been there before and I'll make it fully available. Everybody can read it uh, when the time comes, but it's just kind of exciting. Yesterday, I got to talk to the scholar who translated it and we're able to determine with strong confidence how this key term is being used in this papyrus. And I'll tell you all about it when I do my last, uh, well, my second to last video on the Women in Ministry series, which will come out as soon as it's done. I don't know how far out that is. I still have tons of work to do. Just know I'm behind the scenes, slaving away. Otherwise, um, yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate you guys. 
if you can give the videos the con you know likes and comments and stuff like that um this is just to promote reach other people see uh money i just see reach i just see reach for getting the content into more people's lives and more people being impacted and doing doing a review of the of the podcast a review of the content wherever you find it um sharing it that sort of thing increases reach increases awareness it increases the ability to share the gospel the goodness of god's word the saving grace of jesus christ and helping people learn to think biblically that's that's reach that's reach that's why all the content is given away for free charge for nothing because reach 